Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 1. Last week we were not in Luke as uh, we preached a message for Resurrection Sunday about the conquering Christ, but two weeks ago we had looked at verses 1 through um, 20, a little bit uh, considering some of those verses. There's going to be a little bit of overlap this morning as we look at the 20 verses from verse 18 to 38. A study in faith is the title of the message. Uh, faith is defined in scripture in Hebrews chapter 11 as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that hope that is seen is not hope. For if a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Hope being that earnest expectation of that which we cannot see, uh, a, a joyful and earnest expectation. And Paul says if, if it's hope, then you don't see it. If, it if, if you can see it, if it's tangible, then it's not hope. It's there. It's, 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 it's seen. The idea with faith, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, by its very essence, is about acting upon that which is unseen. Now, that does not mean that there is no evidence for the thing in which we have faith. It simply means we cannot see it. There are examples everywhere of things that we have faith in, things which have tangible evidence and yet are unseen. Gravity is one of those things which, though we cannot see it, it can be felt, it can be tested, it can be proven. The wind cannot be seen, and yet the effects of the wind are absolutely unmistakable, so much so that the effects of the wind are, are as tangible as anything that is visible. An illness takes place deep within the body, uh, oftentimes a virus or a bacteria. And unless you have special equipment, you can't see the virus, you can't see the bacteria. And yet the effects of that virus or the effects of that bacteria are very real. So too is faith. Faith is when we base our understanding and our actions upon that which is not seen doesn't mean it cannot be understood. It does not mean that it cannot be quantified. It does not mean it cannot be proven. It simply means it cannot be seen. And today we contemplate faith. And we do, do so through a contrast. Last week we considered the events of Gabriel as he appeared unto Zechariah, two weeks ago, as he appeared unto Zacharias in the temple. And he appeared unto Zacharias with an announcement that Zacharias' wife Elizabeth was going to have a son even though they were very old. There was no physical way that the announcement that Gabriel had made could come to pass. Elizabeth was old. She was well past the years whereby she could have a child biologically. Zecharias was then confronted with a moment when he had to make a decision. Would he believe that which the angelic being had told him? Or wouldn't he? Would he act upon the knowledge that he had been given under complete assurance of its truth? Or would he not? Would he stake his life and his future and his family upon this announcement? Or would he put up protections and seek further assurances about whether what the angel said was trustworthy? 
Now we know what Zacharias should do, and in fact we know what he did do. We know what he should have done because we saw the outcome of the wrong decision he made. We're from the outside looking in at this happening, and we say, Zacharias, why didn't you just believe? Why didn't you just, why couldn't you just be happy? We talked about two weeks ago not looking a gift horse in the mouth, right? If Gabriel says you're going to have a child, just say thank you. Don't, don't ask him to prove it. And yet, if we were to be honest with our own spirits this morning, what would we do? What would you do? Your character, how you operate. God had not spoken to anyone in 450 years in this way. So you wouldn't have recent events to back up your convictions. It's not like everyone would be walking around wondering when the next angel is going to appear. So when he appears, you say, yes, it's me this time. Wouldn't have been like that. 450 years. So many generations have gone by since anything like this has happened. An angel appears to you in the temple, makes this announcement. What would you have done? Your wife is old. You don't have any biological reason to accept these claims. What would you have done? In reality, though, we face decisions all the time where we're confronted with, are we going to put our faith in God or are we going to put our faith in something else? Are we going to trust what the Lord says or are we going to have to get proof first that the Lord is serious when he says what he says? We come into contact with the promises of God's word and we're asked to structure our lives based upon what it tells us. And that's faith. The question is, how do we do? Are we like Zacharias? Do we need more proof? We enter our text and we're going to review a couple of verses, go back in time a little bit to verse 18 this morning. And this will be by way of review so that we can remember together Zechariah's response to Gabriel and Gabriel's response back to him. We read in verse 18, And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Zechariah responds to Gabriel's announcement with this question, seeking proof. We, we talked about this two weeks ago. They're old. Elizabeth is old. Zechariah is old. He wants a sign. He wants validation. He wants proof. Now, I ask you to read those words again and to search your own hearts on this one. Is what Zechariah is asking for so unreasonable? Proof that this would come to pass. Would you do any differently with a similar circumstance in your own life? Now, that being said, I don't, I don't say any of that to, to uh, get Zechariah off the hook here. After all, this is the same scenario that faced Abraham wasn't it? Did not God promise Abraham a child through Sarah years after Sarah had become biologically incapable of bearing children? Should not this announcement, incredible though it may be, have hearkened the mind of Zechariah back to that day when, when Abraham has, has taken Hagar and had Ishmael and God now comes to him and says, no, 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 I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. And Abraham says, but she's ceased to be able to have children. She's old now. And God says, doesn't matter. Should that not his mind have gone back to that and at least validated in part what he was experiencing on that day as Gabriel announced this to him? 
when Abraham was told of that miracle, he wondered, the Bible says. Sarah, listening in her tent, laughed, the Bible says. Laughed within herself. But neither of them asked for a sign. Neither of them said, God, prove it. Zacharias asked for a sign. And by the way, he would get one. Continuing, verses 19 and 20. The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. We often say at Legacy Baptist Church, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. It's come up many times recently. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. We considered just two weeks ago as we contemplated Gabriel's words, thy prayer is heard, that God has complete discretion concerning how he chooses to answer our prayers. So we can lift up our prayers to him, and kind of like my wife had mentioned in her testimony this morning about little Haley, um, that we can desire God to do things for us, and yet the way in which God does it is not what we want. Uh, That um, we can pray and ask the Lord for something, but we also have in our minds how the Lord is going to answer that request. And when he doesn't do it the way we expect, it can throw us, it can confuse us, it, it, it can make us even despair. So he asks for a sign, and he doesn't specify what kind of sign he wants, like Gideon did back in the Old Testament. Gideon put the fleece out and uh, asked for a couple of things of the Lord. Zacharias wasn't specific. He just said, I, I want a sign. And so he gets a sign. And it's not one that he would have chosen. But it is a sign, is it not? It is God answering his request through Gabriel. And as we consider this, that it is in fact a sign, we begin to see how gracious God is with Zacharias here. Isn't he? He isn't rejecting Zacharias for his greater need for proof. But this need for proof does come at a cost. Zechariah is the recipient of God's great grace. He's still going to have this son. And yet, the blessing won't be perhaps as great because through the weakness of his faith, he asked for a sign, and so now he's not going to be able to speak and probably not hear either for the next nine plus months. And this is what God is communicating here through the sign. Not a rejection of Zechariah, but rather, first and foremost, a sign that, yes, indeed, these things will come to pass. And secondly, that Zechariah should not have needed more proof than an angel appearing before him and announcing this joyous tiding. Now, the narrative continues in verses 21 and 22 and says this, And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled, that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. Zechariah took much longer than expected to burn the incense, and at the end of this time, he comes out, and it's quite clear that there was something wrong. He could not speak. Presumably, he could not hear. And I mentioned two weeks ago why that is. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks as we get farther in the narrative. Why it appears that Zechariah, it's not just that he couldn't speak, but why it appears that he also could not hear. 
But it became apparent as they sought to communicate with him, we know he can still write, that something happened in the temple. He saw a vision of some sort. Continuing in verse 23, the text tells us, it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. So he didn't have to go home right away here. He, he was in fine health. They allowed him to continue to minister. In what capacity, we don't know. We know in Leviticus 21 that the high priest could have no blemish and still go into the holies. So the high priest was not allowed in with blemish. Did that pertain to Zechariah as well? We don't really know. Did he have to stop ministering in the temple proper because he now had a blemish? He, he couldn't speak. Um, we don't know. But either way, it appears that he finished out his ministration and then he was able to go home. The narrative of Zechariah and Elizabeth ends with Elizabeth conceiving and then hiding herself for the first five months. We read about this in verses 24 and 25. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Indeed, she hid herself for the first five months, but she's not ashamed here, nor is she unhappy. In fact, she says that the Lord has now removed my reproach from among men. We've talked about it several times that to not be able to bear children was a reproach. It was, it was a, a terrible thing in that culture. And now she is rejoicing in the fact that she has been freed from that reproach. She is more than happy with the reality that she is going to bear a child. Presumably in the fifth month was that the point where she told everyone that she was pregnant so that they could rejoice with her. And now we move ahead in the text. And we move ahead six months from when Elizabeth conceived, one month from when she revealed herself to be pregnant. And we read about this in verses 26 and 27. The text tells us, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We never read exactly where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived. We know that they are of uh, the, the lineage of Levi and that they lived in the hill country of Judah. But far more specific is the record of where Joseph and Mary lived. And the scriptures tell us that they lived in a city of Galilee called Nazareth. And in the sixth month after John is conceived, Gabriel is sent to Nazareth to make another announcement, sent to another person. And this time it was to a woman named Mary, an espoused virgin. Now, we've just covered several topics which I'd love to talk about, but I'm not going to this week. I'm going to next week. Why Nazareth? Why an espoused virgin? What does it mean that she was espoused? Why, why was it significant that she was a virgin? Why is the text telling us these things? Uh, why the house of David? Uh, all of these have significance. And we'll talk about why next week all of these things are significant. But for this week, just uh, follow along with the narrative. We're going to hit it. Hit another point. So Gabriel appears unto Mary, and we read in verses 28 and 29, the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. The, the word that's translated here from the Greek highly favored is a word used only two times in the Bible. It's used here to describe this woman, Mary, that she is highly favored. And the other time we find it is actually in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, to describe 
the position which believers have as being born again in Christ. That you have been made highly favored in Christ. What a blessing it is when we think about that. That the same favor that God showed upon this woman Mary and that He bestowed upon her the privilege of bearing the Messiah and then raising the Messiah. That that same uh, impact, that same favor rests upon you by virtue of your salvation. This also reminds us that uh, when we see the liturgical denominations, particularly the Catholic Church, and the ways in which they elevate Mary, they take some of these words and they make them so important. The word highly favored, the word blessed. And yet here we see this word highly favored is attributed to everyone who is in Christ as well. That she was not necessarily anything special in her character. She was not a perfect woman, sinless herself, as the Catholics would say. There's nothing in the scriptures that would even remotely hint at, at her being some sort of special human in any spiritual sense or in any physical sense. For indeed, we too are highly favored in Christ. Indeed, we are blessed in Christ text does say that she is announced to be the most blessed among women. For generations of women of Israel had longed to be the one who would have the honor of carrying the Messiah, and Mary had been the one chosen to do so. And such was the character of Gabriel's announcement to her. However, she, the text says, was troubled by this. Uh, it doesn't tell us exactly why. Uh, this is not to be a, a trouble of disappointment. She was not disappointed about this or anything of the sort. Indeed, um, no woman would be disappointed by such an honor, but perhaps she was troubled about the weight of the responsibility which had just been placed upon her. She was no doubt a very young woman. And you can imagine what it must have been like for her to learn that she is going to carry Messiah, and not just that she was going to carry Messiah, but then she's going to be Messiah's mother. She is going to raise the Messiah. Now, when I became a father, it was extremely intimidating. Not necessarily the process of going through the pregnancy and birth and feeding them and clothing them, but the weight of a soul, of, of human souls, of spiritual beings, the weight of teaching them the Word of God, of raising them to love the Lord, the weight of being a parent. Have you ever had an instance where great honor or responsibility has been bestowed upon you and your immediate excitement gives way to the weight and the gravity of what, what has just been placed upon you? You say, yay! Oh, wow. Right? Have you ever had one of those? I can think of times in my own life, one of them when I was called to this church. I knew that this is where the Lord wanted me and I was in seminary and finishing up and you're just doing and you're, you're, it's, it's a transaction at that point. I'm trying to, to make sure that this is right for me and the church is trying to make sure that I'm right for them and, and we're, we're going back and forth and it's kind of this academic level and also this spiritual level of is this right? What could the Lord do? And, and you finally get that call and you get the offer and that's a great thing and you're so excited you, got, you have this offer to become the pastor of this church and, and, and you're blessed and then you say, wow. I'm now responsible for the spiritual direction of other people's lives. 
I'm now going to be a, a important link in the chain of children's spiritual growth. And the weight of that is heavy. When you're made a leader, when you're promoted at work, when you, uh, when you become a parent, all of these instances where you're, you're so excited, you're honored, you, you have the, the privilege of this new position and that's great, and then you step back and you say, but with that privilege comes so much responsibility. And you might be a little troubled, as Mary was. I believe that might have been the trouble that she was feeling here, wondering if she was indeed up to the task that the angel was bestowing upon her. She would not just be the woman to carry and birth Messiah, but she would be the woman to raise Messiah. What would that be like? What kind of a responsibility would that be? The eyes of the entire nation, and indeed, if prophecy is correct, the entire world would be upon this child whom she would bear. So Gabriel continues in verses 30 and 31. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. That word being charis, grace. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. The familiar words which we saw even with Zacharias, fear not. Fear not, Zacharias, we heard. Now fear not, Mary. Now the condition upon which Zacharias need not fear, Gabriel said to Zacharias, fear not, thy prayer is heard. For Mary, he says, fear not, you found grace with the Lord. For she will conceive and bring forth a son. And, this, and he says that the son's name would be called Jesus. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yahashua or Joshua, which literally means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. And Gabriel then proceeds to describe the character of the child that Mary would bring forth. He says in verses 32 and 33, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now again, we'll talk about some of the prophetic significance of this next week. We'll go to the passages and we'll understand why Luke put this into the gospel. But as we read this, we read that he would be great, called the son of the highest. He would be given by God the Father the throne of King David, meaning that he would be that posterity of David that was promised in Ezekiel that was promised in 2 Samuel 7. He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom would have no end. And at this moment, I'd like to pause and do a little bit of comparing and contrasting between the situation that Mary finds herself in at this moment and the situation that Zacharias had found himself in at least six months prior. As we consider this compare and contrast, Zecharias and Mary both had the angel Gabriel appear unto them. They were both given an announcement of something that was biologically impossible. I say that Zacharias's was actually biologically unlikely because, I mean, something can happen, right? So, so Zecharias and with Elizabeth, this is a effective a possibility, but at least the biological processes are in place to where she could presumably conceive. Uh, she would just have to, the Lord would have to allow another uh, egg to, to be produced. It, it, it's biologically everything is there. It's just stopped. Mary is being told something that's biologically impossible. Absolutely impossible biologically for her to conceive without 
seed. It's biologically impossible. So the impossibility level is higher with what the, Gabriel is announcing to Mary. And then the promise is very similar as well. The one promise is that this child would become Messiah's herald. The other promise is that this child would be the Messiah itself. So as we compare and contrast the messages of Gabriel and the message of, uh, of Gabriel to Zacharias and the message of, of Gabriel to Mary, we see in these two circumstances that really Mary's situation is the more unbelievable. Mary's situation is the, the, the more surreal. But how does Mary respond? Verses 34 and 35 say this, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Notice that Mary does not question whether or not this is going to happen. She doesn't seek a sign here. She asks a question. And the question is, is completely valid. Gabriel, I've never known a man. How can I have a kid? How can I have a child? How is this possible? Well, God shows himself more than willing to tell her how this would come about. That she would be overshadowed with the power of God. The word there literally meaning to have a shadow come over. Like on a hot day when you sit underneath a tree and you receive the coolness of the shade from that tree. Bible says Gabriel describes the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit as overshadowing her, coming upon her, and thus she would conceive of the Holy Ghost. And so this child would have no human father. A human mother to bear him, no human father conceived of the Holy Ghost. So Gabriel says this child will rightly, in every sense, be called the Son of God. Human mother, no human father, conceived of the Holy Ghost. We'll talk more about that next week. He goes on in verses 36 and 37. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Gabriel mentions that hers is not the only miracle. Elizabeth, who is in fact Mary's relative, had also conceived a son in her old age. Now the word we have here in our King James is cousin. This does not necessarily imply cousin like we know cousins today, as in uh, my parents, siblings, children. Those would be our cousins today. And we have a very formal definition of what a cousin is. But back in 1611, when this was initially translated, the word cousin was far more broad, and it was simply used as a term in the English to reflect a relative, a, a distant relative beyond immediate family. And so it wasn't necessarily intended here that we would see it as cousin, as in Elizabeth is Mary's parents' daughter. That would not really make a whole lot of sense, would it? Considering that Mary is so young and Elizabeth is already beyond birthing years, there's... there's a whole generation between them. So, so they're relatives. They're not explicitly cousins as we would think of them today. And that's what the Greek term means. The Greek term um, means relative. And, and 
oftentimes is used in that formal sense of cousin, but in this case, certainly it is not. Not wrongly translated, it just doesn't carry over into today's English as well as perhaps we would like. So Gabriel announces that Elizabeth is six months along in her pre pregnancy, the one who was called barren, and then he gives this fantastic statement. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And that really answers all questions, right? When she says, how could these things be, seeing I have not known a man, it really answers all the questions to say, well, it's God. God can do it. It answers Zacharias' questions. It answers Mary's questions. And it ought to answer many of our questions as well. How can I, dot, 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 if I do what the Bible says, I'm going to put myself at a disadvantage, how will that work out for me? What should I do when I'm in this bad spot and, and, and things aren't looking better? What is God doing? How can God fix this? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. He got a little bit into the how. But at the end of the day, nothing is impossible with God. This thing is going to happen because God wants it to happen. And if God wants something to happen, he can make it happen. Well, this was enough for Mary. She responds in verse 38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. The scriptures tell us the angel departed from her. Well, it didn't take much. She effectively says, okay, if you say so, I believe you. And the angel leaves. She didn't seek a sign. She didn't ask for proof. What made the difference between Mary's response and Zacharias's response? Why did Zacharias seek proof and Mary sought none? They both had the same angel appear to them, almost the same announcement, with almost the same amount of impossibility in the announcement. Why the difference? Well, the promise of Gabriel given to Zacharias is founded upon the prophecy of Malachi 4. The promise of Gabriel given to Mary is founded upon the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. The difference is not that one had scriptural support and the other didn't. The difference is, again, not the angel. It's not that one seemed less or more likely than the other. So the difference was simply this. Mary was willing to believe it, and Zacharias wasn't. It was the degree to which each exercised their faith. The degree to which their trust in the unseen compelled their response and their action. Zacharias asked for proof before he was comfortable placing his faith in the message. Mary asked for nothing more than the word of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. The word of the divine messenger. Now I've mentioned already, let me emphasize, I do not desire in any way to paint Zacharias as a bad man or as a man of little faith. We have this tendency in Christian circles just because when we look at the Bible we have this top-down view to kind of give certain people a bad rap for their decisions, right? We, we have a tendency to give Peter a bad rap for always sticking his foot in his mouth. We have a tendency to give Thomas a bad rap for doubting uh, that the Lord had risen. We have a tendency to look at these people, uh, Moses, we have a tendency to give Moses a bad rap for breaking those tablets of stone. 
and yet when we look over the entire course of their lives, would that we could be just a little bit of what those men were. Would that we could aspire into just a little bit of what they found in, in Christ, in God. Zechariah was a man that was described in the scriptures as being a man of piety and righteousness and godliness. This is not a man that, that we should look down upon. But we do need to understand that there is a contrast here. And that certainly he exercised less faith than Mary. And we see that in the results. Likewise, every believer in this room has exercised faith. If you are a born-again believer, you have exercised that faith, that faith, just the bit of mustard seed faith, sufficient to translate you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You are a believer. In our application today, I urge you to keep my words in perspective. I'm not here to tell you that you have no faith. I'm not here to tell you that you are a bad Christian. And yet we see two people in this text that love the Lord respond very differently to the Lord. And I'm praying that this will give us an opportunity this morning to examine our faith. Whether we would respond as Mary did or as Zechariah did. How much faith do you have? How much faith could you have? How much faith should you have? So we're going to look at three points this morning, building on our understanding of faith and this scenario that we see in Luke chapter 1. First point, spiritual faith pleases God. Spiritual faith pleases God. This sounds a bit basic, but I'd like you to think along with me on this. Faith pleases God. So strong is the Bible on this point that Hebrews 11.6 tells us this. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The ones who please God are the ones who do two things, the Bible says. Believe that God is and believe that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. In the realm of the spiritual, we, we recognize two different con distinct concepts here. The first is faith unto salvation. This is the moment where you recognize that you're a sinner, you recognize that you cannot get yourself to heaven, you recognize that there's no amount of work, or amount of money, or amount of effort that can get you there, and so you place your life at the feet of Jesus Christ, you, you place your eternity at the faith of Jesus Christ, you accept the finished work of Christ on the cross, his death and his burial and his resurrection to have purchased for you what you could never earn, deserve, or purchase for yourself. And when you truly accept that, the word used in the scripture is when you believe, not just mental assent, but when you place your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you will be saved and that you receive the blessing of salvation at that moment. There is also sanctification, and this is that day-by-day -day growth and understanding and obedience that takes place in the believer's life following him being born again. Now, in this verse, we see faith described in similar terms. That the man who pleases God is first the man that believes God is, that believes who God is and what he has said. This is the man who has accepted by faith the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That pleases God. 
But we also see that faith that pleases God is a faith that believes that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Diligently seek him. As we continue to pursue Christ, pursue the word of God in faith, that we do so because we are fully persuaded that God is a rewarder of that. Not just unto salvation, but unto spiritual blessing. Now, when we connect this reality, the reality that faith pleases God, to another concept found in Romans chapter 8, we get a clearer picture still. In Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Just as it is impossible to please God without faith, so too it is impossible to please God in the flesh. And this adds kind of the uh, second layer, maybe the second side to the same coin, we would say. It's not just having faith that pleases God, but having proper faith. Having faith in the right things. Having spiritual faith. Spiritual faith is compelled by the Spirit of God. This is not a faith that I can throw myself off a building and not die. That might be faith, but it's not spiritual faith. The kind of faith that the scriptures speak of that pleases God is a faith in the word and the work of God. It's a faith that is rightly aligned with the will of God. It's a faith that is spiritual. Not the faith that disregards all responsibilities because I believe God will take care of it for me. So I just sit on my couch and eat potato chips and say God gets to do the rest. That's not, that, 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 that might be faith. I might have full faith in it, but that's not spiritual faith, is it? Because it is not in conformity to the revealed word of God. It's not in conformity to God's character. The faith that pleases God is a faith that aligns itself with the truth of God's word, compelled by spiritual understanding, led of the spirit of God itself, himself. And if you want to please God, the Bible says how to do it. You identify God's expectations in his word. You identify the spirit of God as he leads and guides you through into his will. And then you do it, as we said already this morning. You listen, and then you obey. You listen, and you obey. Easy, right? Well, until the senses step in. Until reality, perceived reality, the world around us, the material world, steps on your toes. This is what Zacharias found. He'd been reading... Uh, had he been reading the gospel of Luke hundreds of years later, he probably would have looked back at that guy and said, just, just listen. And yet when he was there, the things of this world, the material circumstances, the impossibilities of, that his senses perceived opposed his faith. Let us not underestimate the power of the world in which we live, the, the, the one that we see, the one that we feel, to combat and to confuse us, even though we know God's word. So we know that spiritual faith pleases God. We add a layer on top of this as we build this argument. Secondly, spiritual faith is the source from which God's spiritual blessings flow. Faith is the source of divine blessing. To consider just how wonderful, how awesome this is, we need only 
to really rest our minds upon what we've already seen about faith. Faith is when we rest our understanding and our actions upon the unseen as opposed to the seen. And from this, resting our faith, resting our actions and our understanding upon that which is not seen but promised, not seen but taught, we are blessed. In this sense, divine blessing is not a complicated process, is it? It's taking God's word, it's framing our lives around it, and it's receiving the benefits of it. This is not even really a foreign thought to us. We've all been in situations where a blessing is received by faith, uh, even in the material realm. A time where your parents uh, tell you not to do something, tell you, nope, nope, don't do that, and so you don't do it, and then you realize if you had done it, it would have gone bad for you. And you can look back and you can see, even though you, you had to trust your parents on faith, you can look back and you can see how that worked out for you. Or you've got a friend and you're looking for something to order and your friend says, don't order that. Trust me, do not order that. And one of the friends orders it and the other one doesn't. And you realize that, yeah, it was a good idea not to order that. And you put your faith in that friend and it worked out for you. You, you can see on a small scale sometimes those ideas. Now imagine that you have somebody who's never wrong. Imagine you have somebody who understands everything, who knows everything, and he knows it all because he, he designed it all, he created it all, he's in charge of it all. And you have that friend, and that friend is telling you things. Do this. Don't do that. Now, it's one thing when it's your buddy, who could be right, could be wrong, different preferences, different ideas. It's another thing when it's the God of the universe. When the one who's created all things and sustains all things tells you, do this and don't do that, and you trust him, you can trust that things are going to go well for you. When God's word speaks, if we can but take God at his word, we will find spiritual blessings that we could have never otherwise comprehended. Faith is the source from which all blessings flow. The warnings in scripture are manifold against seeking the blessing of God's, uh, God apart from faith. In fact, the nation of Israel right now is living in a state of seeking the blessing of God apart from faith. And they've been so for about 2,000 years now, haven't they? Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32 tell us this. Paul, speaking about the nation of Israel, he says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So Israel, they were seeking God's blessing. They wanted all the good things from God, and yet they refused to seek it by faith, and they never found it. Whereas the Gentiles were not even really looking for the blessing of God, but when they heard about it, they wanted it, and they believed it by faith, and so they got it. There is no way to be blessed of God apart from faith. Israel is trying they are trying in their legalism today through their Judaizing religion. They are trying so hard. Did you see the announcement this week that, that the, the temple project, that they're finally sending the call out for, for any of the prosperity or uh, posterity of, of, of Aaron to become, to go through the process of training for the high priesthood so that they can be ready to do the sacrifices once they get the temple back? That call just went out in the last couple of weeks for all the Kohanim, for all of the sons of Aaron to come 
and to be checked out to make sure that their lineage is correct so that they can become a part of that process. They are still trying their best to please the Lord. But they're doing it outside of faith and they are failing. They have no blessing because there is no faith. We um, would read a, a similar idea as James would tell the church in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He says, If any of you lack wisdom, a spiritual blessing, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. The man that, that's not seeking wisdom and faith, don't expect, don't, don't expect the Lord to, to bless you. Don't expect the spiritual blessings of the Lord if you're not going to pursue it in faith. If you want wisdom, ask. But ask in faith, because if you don't ask in faith, don't expect anything from the Lord. Pleasing God is not a mystery. It's not an extension of doing. It's an extension of trusting. And make no mistake, the man or woman of faith will find himself living in conformity to the righteous expectations of God. But obeying the righteous expectations of God is the overflow of God's favor, not the source of God's favor. We don't do good things to incur God's favor. We, we exercise faith to incur God's favor. God's favor rests upon those who are full of faith. God's spiritual blessings rest upon the faithful. How often do we seek God's blessings apart from faith, I wonder? How often do we seek the comfort, the joy, the rest, the spiritual power, the spiritual effectiveness which the Bible promises we can have from the comfort of our own faithless hearts. We'll tie our shoes tight. We'll get ourselves ready to go to serve the Lord, to find His blessings. And yet we forgot to pack faith. How often are we like Zacharias, knowing the spiritual blessing of God, only to say, God, could you prove it? How often are we like Mary? hearing the promises of God, the things that God has promised to give to us in our context. You can live free from sin. You can be spiritually successful and impacting. You can have joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. And we hear those promises and we say, be it unto me according to thy word, Lord. Spiritual faith pleases God. Spiritual faith is the source from which God's spiritual blessings flow. Third and finally, though, and, and, and I, I don't want to soften the point, but I want to encourage you. Weakness in faith does not mean total spiritual loss, but it does mean less spiritual blessing. As we contemplate the actions of Zechariah, and even as we consider his request for proof, God's obvious displeasure at being asked for proof in that he makes Zechariah dumb for several months. We made the point of mentioning that Zechariah was still going to have this child. They were still going to have the blessing of raising this child. God did not appear to Zechariah through Gabriel and say, you're going to have a child. And when Zechariah said, ah, could you prove it? Gabriel says, oh, sorry, revoked. I'll go find another priest. That didn't happen. 
did it. Zechariah' lack of faith here did not over the shadow, overshadow the fact that he was a man of faith, enough to be called righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinance of the Lord blameless. And let's not forget that. You know, when we consider the faith of Zechariah and the faith of Mary, we're considering the difference between silver and gold. They're both precious. They're both valuable. They both have substance. It's just one was a little bit better than the other. We might even be able to say the difference between 14 karat gold and 24 karat gold. One was just more pure than the other. One had not been brought to the purity of the other, of, of the, the former. And you know, we have a tendency, at least I do, not just to look at biblical characters and to see their failures, but I have a tendency to really focus on my own, my own failures. I have a tendency to heighten my weaknesses to where there's nothing left but the, those weaknesses. So when Moses gets angry and breaks the tables of stones, we call him an angry man, even though we forgot about all of the other times that these people really provoked him, and he just fell on his knees before the Lord. So when Peter begins to sink while walking on the water, we say, oh, faithless Peter, only to remind ourselves that he was the only one of the 12 that got out of the boat. The other 11 were still standing in the boat, and we say, faithless Peter? And here we see the doubts of a godly man. And we can forget that he was still a man of stellar character, a man so blessed that he was chosen to be the father of John the Baptist. And so it is with us. I do not preach this message so that you will feel as though you are or must be defined by your spiritual favors. That you must be defined by every act of faith or faithlessness. But if this little case study this morning can make you desire to have that more faith, to be that Mary instead of that Zacharias, that'd be a wonderful thing. Your weakness in faith will, will not, if you're a believer, lead to complete, total spiritual loss. But I am here to warn you that your weaknesses in faith, those areas where you read the Bible and you're not willing to go there, you're not willing to take that step, and the Holy Spirit can place upon your hearts where, where those places are for you, if you'll listen. They may, very well might be stripping you of serious spiritual blessings that God would otherwise intend for you to have. And as we consider this, we, we've talked about Moses, we talked about Peter. Can, can we just consider one more man that gets a bad rap as a way of driving this final point home? Because we kind of talked about him a little bit last week. We read about a man named Thomas in John 20. And if I were to ask you how Thomas is, is re seen today, we'd call him Doubting Thomas, right? The ten apostles were in a room. Christ appeared. Thomas wasn't there. Judas was, of course, dead, so he wasn't there either. We pick up in John 20, verse 29, 25, excuse me, where we read this. The other disciples therefore said unto him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see it in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the, uh, the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. 
Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that having not seen, excuse me, are they that having not seen and yet have believed. Thomas had left all to follow Christ. Thomas was one of the twelve that would be promised to be sitting on the twelve thrones of Israel and heaven judging the twelve tribes. Thomas had gone out in the power of his Savior and done many wonderful works in God's name. And you know what? When Thomas said he wouldn't believe without seeing, God did not yield him to perdition. Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus did what was necessary to help Thomas believe. He was willing to believe. He just had to see first. But that did come with a spiritual legacy, didn't it? Doubting Thomas. And while Jesus was willing to appear unto Thomas in order to aid his belief, he yet states that those who, having not seen, yet still believe, have an added blessing. It's an interesting study in faith, is it not? And that's what I'm encouraging of you this morning. That you would be one of those that is willing to have faith. What are the limits of your faith today? What areas of your life have you hit a wall that says, I know what God wants me to do. I know it through his word. I know it through his spirit. He he has clearly led through the counsel of others. He's clearly led through conviction. He's clearly led through the word of God that I ought to be doing something or not doing something, and yet I've hit a limit to my faith. And you know, God hasn't cast you into outer darkness, but you are limiting the capacity for God to use you and to bless you. Would to God that we would read the promises of His Word and count those promises of greater worth than the promises of this world. That we would read God's plan in the word of God and hold it of higher esteem than our own. That we would obey even when we don't understand the expectations which God has placed upon us. Not because we must, but because we believe that God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Do you have a faith that compels you to obedience? A faith that truly believes God's way is better than your own? Do you trust the world over God? Do you simply accept that because something is tangible, because you can see it, because you can feel it, because you can receive the immediate benefits of it, that it must have better value than that which you can only read? Do you see how the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to strip you of God's blessing by stripping you of faith, causing you only to trust in what you can see, trust in that money? Trust in other people, trust in government, trust in society, trust in the justice system, trust in the church, trust in 
your spouse, trust in your parents. It's not wrong to trust people, but never at the expense of God. And by placing your faith in these at the expense of God, you are stripping yourself of the spiritual blessings which God has for you. Now, we all need these lessons because none of us is perfect. Every one of us has a limit. We all have a ceiling to our faith, the place that God would have you to go, but that you just aren't willing to go. And this morning, it's my prayer that you might be willing to take a step, two steps, take a leap. Go there. Knowing that spiritual faith pleases God, that the source from which all spiritual blessings flow is that spiritual faith. Would you today place your will at the feet of God so that as the Holy Spirit illuminates areas of your life where faith is lacking, you would be ready to yield those to God? When we stand before the Lord, those words that we long to hear are what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. God doesn't regard the bravest, the strongest, the best looking, the most capable when God wants to work, when, when the spiritual blessings of God are poured out in this life and the next, they will be poured out to the faithful. May God help us to be that this morning. Let's pray.